I don't know how I don't every, you know, all the humor these days is about what people are doing with extra time during quarantine. And I'm still looking for my extra time. I just, I mean, I don't know how to tell you this, but you've kind of lived this way your whole life. I guess so. Like between Lego projects and movie watching and drawing and stuff. I mean, the stuff that you're very into is the stuff of quarantine. It's true. So that for this week, for instance, I only, I saw our feature for the week and I streamed one other thing. That's what I've got today. Great. Well, we can just talk about those if you like. So I guess, yeah, all right. So driveways. Dan, I just wanted to pass on the recommendation and I didn't want to oversell anything. So I think I just told you I saw this movie. It's a, it's worth the $5 rental. I did, chose not to tell you at the time that I think this rocketed into my top five things that I've watched this year. Oh, did you really love it? I really loved it. Yeah. Yeah, I liked it all right. Great. We're going to take a break. <laughs> Do you want me to talk about it? Um, I guess so, yes. Yeah, I guess uh... that's what this is about. Okay. A 2019 American drama film directed by Andrew Ahn, starring Hong Chao, Lucas J, and Brian Dennehy. What's going on here is a mother named Kathy has to clean out the house of her sister who has died and with whom she's been estranged for many years. She brings her young son, Cody, along for this project. We discover early on that there is a lot to take care of in this house. It's going to take them longer than they think. So they end up in town longer than mom had hoped. And Cody strikes up a friendship with Brian Dennehy, who's a lonely retiree who lives next door. And the movie, to me, is just a good-natured slice of life. The characters are, are very human and feel things like humans do. There's a warmth to the movie that I appreciated. And we wonder if Cody is going to be able to make connections beyond the adults in his life. We wonder if the if mom is going to come to terms with uh, kind of discovering who her sister was and working through why they didn't have more of a relationship. And uh, so, yeah, a lot of the action does indeed take place in driveways. Indeed, it does deliver on that. Yeah, I, I was hoping there'd be some driveways and it was mostly one driveway, but True. it was a nice driveway. You could see the other driveways adjacent. Yeah, there would be RV parking, I think, if you wanted to mm -hmm. in in the driveway. I think it's pretty good. So here's my, here's why I loved the movie. Um, it's it's a very sweet and human and decent movie at a time when I think that's needed. But I think it has a lot to do with where I thought it might be going versus where it actually was going and, and the ways that it could have been and the, and versus the way that it is. So the two, the two things about the movie are the portrayal of the kid and his deal. And then the character, Dennehy's character, Dell, the old uh, widowed vet who becomes Cody's friend. Uh, Cody is, a sensitive boy he likes video games and he's quiet and he doesn't really know what to say around other kids and he's bullied but the movie and the movie sets all this up and gives us just enough to understand all of this but it doesn't lean into it, it doesn't like spend the first half of the movie torturing cody so that you get it that he's awkward 
you know, there's other kids in the neighborhood. This is a weird place. He has to go with his mom and do this weird thing to clean out his aunt's house. There's a stinky dead cat in the bathroom and he's like doing his best and and being patient and whatever. But then they're going to be there for a while when they realize how big the job is and he has to hang out with some neighborhood kids. And they're the, the scenes of him being forced to hang out with these kind of beefy wrestling kids. It was like every social interaction I had before high school. I said like, the same thing aloud. Really? Yes. I said the same thing aloud as we watched it. I just was in that so many times where you're, oh, you play with the kids. We're here. The kids can all go. It'll be perfect. And they're watching wrestling, which I don't understand. And they're like, you know, immediately start picking on me or or trying to get me to talk about gross things I don't want to talk about. It was so spot on. And not in a cartoonish movie way, in an incredibly uh, re- relatable way. Oh yeah, I'm I'm such a Cody, such that I I wonder if <laughs> yeah. that diminished my enjoyment of the film just slightly. Hmm. That I didn't like going there with him. Yeah, I expected it to be even worse. And the other thing that I expected to be a different was the dynamic with Dell, because when you first meet Dell, he's just kind of a stoic, grumpy vet on the porch kind of a character and you're like okay this guy's going to be racist he's going to say outrageous things they're going to become unlikely friends and it's going to be like an archie bunker and that's not it at all like it's just about a decent old man staring down the end of his life in some very poignant ways and then striking up this friendship he immediately sees uh cody's deal and just in very subtle realistic ways is human and decent and nice to him and, you know, the, you get the sense that if you were to talk politics with Dell, it wouldn't go great. But they don't the movie's not really interested in that. There's kind of a neighbor lady who kind of fills that role. Christine Ebersole. Oh, yeah. Who I did not. I mean, I, I recognized Ish her. I felt like that. She sounds like Christine Ebersole. And I was like, oh, she's gotten so old. And right. then I was like, oh, the last time I saw her was 15 years ago. And oh, then I wow. felt bad about my own life. Right. Go on. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> So they they give her they give her the awkward racist dialogue and that kind of yes. stuff uh, just to get that bit of color in there. But I, just, I don't know I just really loved how Dell was a real guy. And it's a real great tribute to Dennehy, who passed away soon after this movie was made. And um, it goes to a sad place in the end. But again, it's not over the top. Uh, Dell basically has to move away to a facility in, I think, Seattle, they said, with his daughter. Um, and so they, they have to say goodbye, Dell and Cody. And I, I don't know, this movie just charmed me utterly and I was very happy to have it to watch. Yeah. Good performances by, um, Hong Chow and Lucas J, especially, I mean, Denny, he's good always. Um, but to me, the relationship between mother and son really needed to work and it does work. Mm -hmm. I didn't, did you see downsizing? No. So she, the mom, Hong Chao, she is uh, kind of the, the breakout performance of the movie Downsizing with Matt Damon. It's not a great movie. It's a very weird, fascinating premise that doesn't completely work. But she plays a uh, Vietnamese amputee character who steals the show. And then to see her just playing kind of a very, you know, like a low-key mom in this movie mm-hmm. was very interesting. But she's great. Oh, yeah. Maybe I should. Res- I do remember that movie. I should. Yeah. It's worth a watch, watch yeah. It's to totally it. weird, but it's Christoph Waltz being weird and Matt oh. Damon being weird. One of the things I found myself doing 
through this movie was picking at the small, unimportant elements. I was thinking if I were in a situation where a house was full of crap that I had to get rid of, I would just let people in the house and find mm-hmm. things and offer whatever they want for them, get it out as soon as possible. Why did it take a week or more to get a dumpster? She worked right. all day and all the garbage she came up with was like can fit in two cans. Is the garbage right. picked up every day? Yeah. You know, and I know this is yeah. not the point of the <laughs> yeah, movie. No, it is an interesting I guess you know they need you need a premise to get them into this situation, right. but that's such a very specific one. Uh, and then the like, hints about the troubles in the ant's life. Right. It seems like such an obvious solution if they've inherited this house and we know from the beginning that all is not rosy and well where they're coming from, that it could maybe solve a lot of problems for them <laughs> to get a new start in right. this house. And it's not as obvious to them. Yeah. There is a real estate agent character, and I'm not seeing her on the list, but she is very, very, very minor supporting character, but she ends up kind of making an impression and being yep. another uh, kind kindness in their in their experience. Yeah, she was important for a little bit of empathy. Yeah. Yeah, I just I loved the way this movie was understated and, and real. And I mean, it's I, I, I really uh, appreciated it in, in a way that I appreciated like uh, Gloria Bell. Great. Super. All right. I guess we're going to take a break and then we'll come back and talk about Rushmore. Uh, OK, bye. Welcome back. Uh, this week's movie is my selection, of course. Uh, of course. And this is the second time I have asked Again, Dan. 20 years later. To watch Rushmore. Rushmore, of course, being the 1998 uh, sophomore feature from Wes Anderson, starring the uh, then newly discovered Jason Schwartzman as 15 year old all the all the little blurbs about this movie call him precocious 15 year old max Ugh. fisher i that's a weird way to say asshole Creepy but uh, asshole <laughs> so but uh this is our first taste of jason schwartzman also starring bill murray as millionaire steel mill guy herman bloom and the lovely olivia williams as elementary school teacher rosemary cross a small but great cast, Brian Cox as Dr. Nelson Guggenheim, Seymour Cassell as Burt Fisher, Max Fisher's father. Luke Wilson shows up. Andrew Wilson shows up. Owen Wilson doesn't show up, but he co-wrote the screenplay. In rewatching this movie, Dan, uh, which I have not seen in a very long time, uh, I was wondering right away if maybe the Royal Tenenbaums wouldn't have been, if we're going to, we're, we're not going to do an exhaustive Wes Anderson series, and I don't want to do that. If we're going to just dip in, I was thinking, you know, I bet Royal Tenenbaums would have been a more interesting one to revisit because in Bottle Rocket, Wes Anderson's first movie, it's kind of this tiny little indie starring his friends. And then he gets uh, this movie, he gets Bill Murray involved and his, his visual style is kind of on display here for the first time. And then he's got a lot of cachet going into that third movie and he gets a really amazing cast and makes Tenenbaums. Um, which I don't know, might be more interesting to talk about. I do have some thoughts on this movie, including some surprising personal ones that I wasn't anticipating. But as a movie, academically first, um, this is Anderson's second movie. It is about a uh, 
15 year old kid at a prep school called Rushmore, who is a, um, a performative overachiever, except he's also a really bad student. And uh, he's the kind of person who floats by on a whole lot of guile and gravitas. And he puts on plays. He wrote a play in the second grade, which is what got him a special uh, scholarship or some kind of induction into Rushmore Academy. His grades are terrible. And all he does is start clubs and put on plays. And he finally is in trouble. He's on going to be on academic probation or he is basically scheming for ways to stay at the school. Meanwhile, he befriends sad sack millionaire Bill Murray as Herman Bloom, a kind of cuckolded, uh, sad, middle-aged, rich guy who admires Max Fisher. They kind of become friends until the teacher that uh, Max has a crush on, played by Olivia Williams, ends up uh, kind of getting friendly with Mr. Bloom. And then there's all kinds of revenge montages and cool needle drops. And then uh, there's some angst and he has to leave the school and go to a normal public high school where he does some of the same wacky shenanigans. And then he ends up putting on a big show at the end that brings all the characters together. And I sound like I'm dismissively kind of rushing through the story. I think most people know this movie. Uh, I do like this movie a lot and I did enjoy rewatching it for the following reasons. I'll say what I, what I like first. I think that this movie could have been a kind of Napoleon dynamite kind of situation where it's a wacky character and everything about it is just kind of superficial and wacky. And I do think there's some warmth and humanity and interesting things going on in the supporting characters in this movie. I like Bill Murray. I mean, he's a, he's an old asshole himself, but uh, I, I kind of felt things for his character. I really like Olivia Williams. Uh, I think that she's a very sympathetic character, uh, albeit a, a kind of strange one. I like it also as kind of an announcement of Wes Anderson's visual style that he is very he gets he immediately in his second movie is going to town with the tracking shots and the proscenium. And he li there literally are curtains opening and closing on the scenes in, in this movie, the symmetry of the of the compositions and. And uh, and the Mark Mothersbaugh music, uh, I, I really like the soundtrack in this movie. He does makes I'd say that Wes Anderson, for me, is up there with Tarantino in the use of music. And he uses uh, Rolling Stones, which is a rare thing to hear in a movie. He uses uh, I'm Waiting by the Ro uh, Rolling Stones very effectively in this movie. I guess where this movie gets complicated for me as a film is in its main character, Max Fisher. Um, I actually like Jason Schwartzman and I didn't think he was going to laugh. I thought this was going to be it. I remember back in the day being like, well, that's a really interesting performance in a weird movie. How can that guy have any kind of career after that? And I think he's done it. I think he's kind of got that, you know, cool comedy guy kind of vibe. And I've seen him in a lot of performances that I have enjoyed, but Max Fisher is a complicated, weird and abrasive character. I guess I appreciate that the movie has a bit of, of emotional backstory for him. His mother died when he was quite young, and it seems that he's in a perpetual state of uh, dysfunction and, and arrested development from that, and that he uses his creativity and bluster to kind of project an image, and he ends up being an incredibly rude person uh, who gets people to go along with his schemes at a surprising rate. So that's kind of where this movie has some flaws, I think where it, it goes back and forth between having relatable human characters and recognizable emotions and relationships to being kind of a character comedy where this character is just doing 
awful things and sometimes people go along with them and sometimes they get mad at him and it's just about i don't know if the, if this is about i don't know if it's autobiographical in any way if this is wes anderson's describing what it's like for him and why he makes movies that some people have posited that but i have certainly rambled enough about my academic take i'll have other comments later about some things that occurred to me watching this movie but dan i will now throw to you to ask about your second viewing uh completely unprompted of <laughs> rushmore well if this is at all autobiographical then Wes Anderson is a vicarious criminal. I, wow. I, yeah. I remember watching this 20 years ago with you, and I don't really remember a thing about it except that I didn't feel for it or see in it what you did at the time. Watching it now, it was it's just like a fresh viewing, and I agree with you that I like the filmmaking. I like the the look of it. I like the tone and the vibe that we're getting. I like the juxtaposition of Max with some of the younger characters and everyone acting a little older than their age. I like the adult supporting characters, uh, Bill Murray and Olivia Wilde. And um, that's her, that's her name, right? Williams. Olivia, Williams. Yeah. Olivia Wilde's the director. I was just like, yeah, that's wrong. And um, Max's dad. There's, there's some warmth and humanity in those characters. But I just hated Max so much. Mm-hmm. throughout i just felt like this was an early picture of an incel that other people like him would look at and think yeah yeah that's it and when finally after all of his shenanigans and all of i mean it's sociopathic and predatory behavior i think that is put out as humor in the movie when finally he doesn't get his way and says, I've got a score to settle back at Rushmore and runs there with a rifle. Right. I mean, this was post Columbine, though not in our era today. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what made you think, even with an air gun, that you should be able to shoot that car- that guy? What did he ever do to you? Yeah. What did he do? There, there was no revenge just this, just he, Max right. feels so entitled to everything that he wants. Well, and the scene was a fake out because it, it ends up being a cutesy way to ask him to be in his play. But yeah, I, it's, it's right. set up as this violent assault. Right. And still, who wants to be hit with any manner of play gun aimed from the sky? What is this? Who is this person who has, and like there's the young girl who's kind of interested in Max he dismisses her entirely through Margaret most Yang, of the movie. Yes. Yeah. And he's he's just cruel to her. And when it comes to the relationship with the teacher, there's absolutely no chance there. She, to me, does not open up in a way that would lead him on. And she's within her rights to do whatever she wants with Bill Murray or whatever else. Why does he feel so entitled to her attention and affection? And then he fakes having been hit by a car so that she'll let him in her window when she's in her pajamas at night to get wet in her bed with his shoes and then to kiss her non-consensually. I just hated him. Yeah. So that's my feelings. I Okay, yeah. I, I totally get it. I think it's a miscalibration on the character. It is very... It is looking at the uh, the whole pantheon of uh, the oeuvre of Wes Anderson movies. It's a very Wes Anderson character trait 
for one of his leading characters to be overzealous, to be overcommitted to something, to have some kind of a dysfunction or, a, or an emotional you know, stuntedness that leads them to push. Uh, Owen Wilson's character is sort of like that in in Bottle Rocket. But yeah, I think in this one, because Max Fisher is, you know, he's 15, so he's he's a minor, but he's old enough that you feel like he, and especially since he's projecting this, what he considers to be an adult image, uh, it does come across. And I wonder why it didn't uh, 22 years ago, at least to me, uh, as being scary. There's this, the scene where he, there's a few scenes that you've described that are uncomfortable, but there's also the one where he confronts Cross in her classroom. Yeah. And he basically makes a move on her that's surly. And he's a kid. You, you're not really afraid for her. You feel like she could definitely defend herself, and she does. But it still feels like this has gone beyond cute character. And, yeah, he's 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 a really bad guy. And then his his cinematic redemption is simply that he chills out, hang, starts hanging out with a girl his own age, and puts on a big play. And I don't know why at that point, other than just, the contrivance of let's end the movie would why would rosemary come to the play and dance with him and who knows maybe the end is a fever dream maybe he's imagining it all um yeah i found his character maybe not as as completely off-putting as you but i definitely felt it was problematic and that that was the part that wasn't working for me on this go around yeah they're so manipulative of her she doesn't want anything to do with either of them and then she ends up at that performance seated next to bill murray and I just felt like, leave this poor woman alone. Right. <laughs> you know, she's already lost her job. Yeah. And I know that he is a child and the characterization of him being acting older than his age is pro- probably part of the problem here. If he seemed more like a deluded child, maybe that would have worked for me a little better. And I did reflect on this because I thought I'm very forgiving of, say, Lester Burnham in American Beauty. He's a creep. You know, he, he's spending the entire movie <laughs> trying to get a 15-year-old into bed with him or 16 or however old she is. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm just kind of like, oh, you know, but, but, uh, you know, this and that, you know, and I'm like making mm-hmm. excuses for, oh, you know, uh, beauty and uh, you can't help how you feel and, uh, you know, this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and yet for a, a kid, I have no mercy. So that's maybe something for me to bring to a therapist. And I hope that Max seeks out a therapist as well because he could really use one. And I wish the movie would have given him some sort of emotional catharsis that could have helped the audience understand why he would have a change of mind or a change of heart. And he might apologize for some of his behaviors to some people to understand a little bit of what was going on in him. But he he doesn't get that moment. He right. just sort of turns on a dime and accepts the affections of the young woman who's interested in him. Right. And he's completely okay with what he was willing to violently attack someone for earlier. I mean, the guy's a vandal and a menace. He should be uh, there, in I th- juvie. He should go to juvie. Right. Juvie. I th- juvie. <laughs> That's what they call it, right? Yes, right. Juvenile hall. Good use. Good use of lingo, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think there is a like a like a specter of something there, but I wish it had been more pronounced because I, I paid attention more this time. I'm better at paying attention to the edges of a movie and to the, the, the backstory that's only hinted at. But, you know, with the date of his mother's death being when he was so young 
and uh, how long he's been at Rushmore beyond even the, the how long he should have been there. But I think that in the part of the movie where he kind of just has to accept the way things are and he ends up, he introduces his father to Bloom as a barber because he's been lying and saying that his father is a neurosurgeon. I feel like there's a missing scene there where something, you know, where he makes the emotional decision to not run away from his past and his family and to embrace who he is. And from, I, I think that's kind of the turning point. It's just that none of it is stated and you're just supposed to go along with it. I wish it hadn't. I mean, I know he's young, but I wish it hadn't been such a depression to him. The prospect of following in his father's footsteps, <laughs> knowing you're 15, right. you want to think that anything's possible. At the yeah. same time, now I'm on the other side of history of, you know, dreams and then what happened. I'm thinking like, oh, you could probably inherit this business and do all right for yourself and have a place yeah. to live and and be just fine. And And the idea that for him, that is reason to sulk for weeks on end yeah. when yeah. when you're only 50. Give me a break. I like the decision to give him a sweet, sympathetic too good to be true parent yeah because his dad this being a movie about a weirdo it could have been just like another you know weirdo or some kind of joke or something but i love seymour cassell and uh in this part he's just very patient and winning and kind and in a way that max doesn't you know live up to or deserve uh and of course i found that to be a bit of a respite and something very sweet why was bill murray invited to speak in chapel I don't know. I mean, his sons go there and he's got a successful business. So I guess it's just, uh, and there's some kind of line about, you know, he's done it before. So maybe he's just a go-to local s success story that you, who has enough money that he gets to speak in chapel. It's not how they selected chapel speakers at my school, but I didn't go to Rushmore. No. Um, so I'll now awkwardly transition into my personal thoughts. And these are very shaggy. Uh, I purposely didn't develop these thoughts because I was like, I don't know, maybe I'll just talk about that on the show. But it's extra awkward now that we just talked for 20 minutes about what a uh, unmitigated asshole and creeper this character is. Because Are I'm you about like, are you like Max? Me. I'm not like Max in that way. But here's <laughs> the aspect of this movie that didn't occur to me until this time. I've watched this movie you know, several times a long time ago. It's been on my stack of favorites and and uh, and I do overall really still like Wes Anderson. I have, I've liked a lot of directors that have kind of gimmicks and visual styles that I feel I've outgrown. I haven't watched a new Tim Burton movie in probably 10 or 15 years. And I do think that Anderson, his stuff holds up better. And I like, so I, I've seen some of his movies and thought they were too much. Uh, I, Isle of Dogs completely baffled me. I liked Grand Budapest very much. Anyway, I like Wes Anderson overall very much. Something that had not occurred to me about Rushmore specifically until watching it was how in a on, on a superficial level, there are elements of this movie that I have never identified with that I might have that there's this kid who kind of isn't great at academics and sails through on his creativity and his showmanship or just uh, it's not the same. I'm not like him. I'm just saying he's a kid who uses theater and bravado and posturing and humor or whatever for me is more humor to kind of avoid the deep things of life to kind of sail through when academics are not cutting it and then he has again he has this non-relationship with an older girl but i had a relationship with a uh, a girl who was you know she was uh seven years older than me at, when i was 18 
and we met doing theater. And it was just some, it was an aspect of, of this movie where I didn't see myself in the actual character of Max Fisher. I just saw the outlines of things for my own life in a mm. way that I hadn't before that actually did trigger weird emotions and nostalgia in me while I was watching it related to revisiting the movie and remembering my life back in 1998, which was only a couple of years removed from this other stuff that it was reminding me of. That's all. It took me on a, on a personal emotional journey that I did not expect and ways that I had never thought about in relation to this title before. Well, I mean, it makes sense why you would identify with it. Yeah. That situation sounds right on the line. <laughs> right. Uh, which is awkward, though, as I'm also having the experience of being kind of reviled by Max Fisher <laughs> this time. I think in the past, I just kind of accepted him as a scamp. Well, it, typical it's, character type. Well, what's different here is that she has no interest in a relationship with him. She's a full-grown adult with her own life, and he's infatuated with her. That w- It would be a different story right. to me entirely if she were going along with Max and initiated any kind of relationship that he drew some hope from, then I, then my view of what was going on would be completely different. Right. So there's a, um, I'm going to leave that personal stuff behind because it's kind of weird and I don't, there's nowhere to go. It would turn into a therapy session if I kept. Well, you can, you can talk to me about it more sometime. All right. Uh, the only other thing I'll say on the, on the topic of this movie, and I don't, I feel sort of like I haven't done this movie a credit, but th- those are, these are my thoughts. I did watch, uh, you know who Matthew Zoller Seitz is? No. He is, you'd probably recognize his name if you saw it written out because he's a byline on a lot of RogerEbert.com stuff. And he was the guy who kind of filled in the writing while Roger was very sick, but while he was still alive. And he, um, he's a critic and he wrote kind of this definitive coffee table book about Wes Anderson and then turned the chapters of that book into video essays. So today I watched the one about Rushmore and it was a completely different take than I had heard before. Uh, I've heard the one about Wes Anderson being autobiographical and kind of announcing his own intentions as an artist through Max Fisher, which you're right. It's it's kind of scary if that's the case, but Seitz says um, his take is that this is a subversion of the kind of eighties, nineties male hero uh, kind of the the lovable asshole character pioneered by Bill Murray, who appears in the film in movies like, you know, Ghostbusters and Groundhog Day and stuff. And that it kind of is turning that on its head by showing the dysfunction and the uh, dickish brokenness that is, that lies underneath these characters that were kind of the default heroes of comedies in the, you know, up until this point when Rushmore is made. Well, if that um, were the case then that was a satire miss because it doesn't seem like they're skewering it. It seems like he just is one of those characters. Right. And wouldn't you take advantage of Bill Murray actually being in your movie and position the characters that way? Yeah, I would think so. It didn't seem like the point of view of the film. It seemed like the point of view of the film was to sympathize with Max. Right. Or to hope he succeeds. Yeah. And since you can't, if you have any decent human feeling... I don't know what the audience is supposed to do with that character. All right. I think that does it for me on Rushmore. Um, Dan, I will await your selection for for next time. Well, you know what? I mean, it may be too much, but I think maybe we should do Royal Tenenbaums. Okay. Wait, you're making that your selection right here on the spot? Right here on the spot. Wow, look at that. Might be a little too much Wes Anderson. But, you know, we've we've been known to do two Jude Laws in a row or seven. (laughs) 
We'll probably be shocked to realize he was in this one and we forgot. Royal Tenenbaums, we forgot. Yeah. Uh, well, that's great. All right. Um, I think I'll enjoy that. Or maybe I won't. Let's see. Let's see we'll what see. this one trudges up. Yeah, I uh, barely remember seeing it, but I have seen it before. Yeah. Dan, thank you very much. I appreciate your indulgence and your company and your thoughts. And As always. Your movie words. Uh, this has been our show. We have been Dan and Josh. You can follow us both on Twitter and Letterboxd. And our show is at Holds Up Pod on Twitter. Get that one weekly tweet guaranteed. And our music's <laughs> by Jonah Rapino. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Great. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Good. I just woke up from an accidental nap. Oh, wow. Is that delightful or oh, it's great. disorienting? No, it's great. <laughs> yeah, it's just like an animal that, no, it's kind of boring in here. So I guess I'm over Perfect. here and now I'm sleeping. Nice. It's like that. Did you fall asleep in like a sunbeam on the carpet? Not quite, but there was a comforter that was left behind on the couch for some reason. Wow. I think Isaac dragged it out here and I just didn't put it away. That could have been like a like a snare. <laughs> it was great. It was great.